Welcome back to The Art of Charm. I am AJ. And I'm Johnny. And this week's a fun episode. We are digging into Johnny's backstory. We've received a number of emails from the listeners wanting to know a little bit more about the new host of the show. So today, I put Johnny on the stand and I grill him and hopefully he won't plead the fifth. I, I certainly didn't. And uh, next week, I'll be putting you on the stand. I'm looking forward to it. If you're enjoying the new show and these Toolbox episodes, drop a line in iTunes or your favorite podcast app, leaving us a testimonial. We'd really appreciate it. With that, we will kick off 698, Johnny's Life. Let's do it. One of the common threads between the two of us, Johnny and I, is that blue-collar background coming from the Rust Belt, having this gotta-work-hard-to-survive mindset given to us by our dads. And I know over the years, we've laughed a lot about that backstory and how it truly has connected us in such a deep way. And we call this the question. We get this a lot when we take meetings, we're pitching the company, we're trying to work on some strategic partnerships, and the pitch goes well, everyone's about to get up, and they turn and look at us, and Johnny and I know right away. We know it's coming. And what's going to happen. We even bet when it's going to pop up. And without fail, they go, great story, guys. I love what I'm hearing. The Art of Charm sounds fantastic. One thing I just can't figure out. You two. I don't get it. You, I don't know how this guys, works. How do, are you guys friends? And we do have pretty distinct backgrounds. And today we're going to highlight your background, Johnny. And we're going to talk about how we met. And even when we met the first time, it wasn't that instant connection. It took a number of years, actually, for us to get close and working at the Art of Charm. And we've had a diverse team over the last 11 years. We've gone through expansion, contraction, and expansion multiple times, like any business does. In the very beginning of the business, you and I didn't have that much interaction because there was so much staff, so much to manage, and it took yeah. a number of years before we started to really click. I want to dive first into your Pittsburgh background. And for those listeners who recognize your Pittsburghese, your well, dialect it, from central Pennsylvania there. It's been diluted over the years. I mean, I am now close to 20 years removed from that area, and I spent a lot of time in North Carolina too, which I'll get into, but it's been diluted. Some people actually wait to see if it comes out when I'm drunk, but it doesn't either. I couldn't even do it now if I tried, but it is everyone from that area knows it's a very distinct thing. And if you catch me on it, you can call me out. I can't Maybe. wait for the listeners to, to hammer you on that one. <laughs> so growing up in the Pittsburgh area, give us a little background on your family life and essentially what your first job was. That's what I'm always fascinated by. You know, I was born about 40 miles southeast of Pittsburgh, which uh, was a place called Greensburg, which growing up at that time in the late 70s, early 80s is when the industry of that area started to leave. The major industry in Pittsburgh was drying up, and even the small factories where I had grown up were closing up as well. So it, because it was one of the Pittsburgh surrounding areas, there was a, it was very centered on this lunch pail mentality that we had talked about in the, the mental models toolbox. I certainly grew up in a house where dad was there, wasn't there, you know, from that shift, that morning shift until 4 or 5 p.m. For myself growing up, when him working in that way at, at that factory at PPG, Pittsburgh Play Glass, 
I think people just get hard when they're helping their families survive and working so much. And I'm sure you can relate to that too. It just seemed like my dad was always pissed off about something. <laughs> yeah, the, the Rust Belt scowl, so yeah. to speak, where you didn't want to get on his bad side, especially before he ate his dinner. When I look back upon it, I, I see him as a little bit cold in the fact that he just wanted to push forward and go to work and get it through another day kind of guy. For myself, growing up there, it wasn't a very expressive household in the, in the way that I would be able to say what I was feeling or thinking. If I was to complain about something or express myself in a certain way, a lot of the times my dad would say things like, well, if you want to talk like that, talk like that around your mother. Right? I just spent 10 hours in a glass factory bending glass for automobiles. I don't want to hear it. My mom, through my growing up, was a hairdresser, which is definitely... I guess, rubbed off on me because I never had a normal cut ever. Really? I had no idea. Yeah. Your, your hair looks very normal to me. I don't know what all the, <laughs> the hubbub's about. I it was kind of like her test subject as I was growing up. Like, if there was a new style, you better believe that my sister and I were rocking it for the sake of giving my mom some practice at it. Body waves, perms, feathered. And we're talking about 70s, 80s, all of that crazy ass stuff. But growing up there... I realized at an early age that my town was kind of busted up. It was boarded up. And I would always have to hear if we would go in the town and I would ask my mom, what is this row of boarded up windows? Oh, well, that used to be Kaufman's or Sears. And well, where is it? Well, there was a mall put on one side of it for that suburb. And there was a mall put on the other side of it for that suburb. And of course, what happened? Those two malls open up. Our town gets boarded up. And growing up in the Midwest, watching that transition as industry left, the sentimentality that your family held on to, right? For us, it was Hudson's in Michigan. <laughs> and the sentimentality of like, oh, we used to go here every Christmas to see Santa. There was all yeah. these holidays where these big department stores were a part of the culture, a part of life. As children, you looked forward to it. Me and my sister missed out on that in a lot of ways because it was already collapsing in the mid to late 80s. So we would always hear, oh, that used to be something awesome. That used to be this candy store that we loved when we were kids. And yep. you just saw the businesses decaying and leaving for these big box stores. And you felt a little bit like you were losing that, that history that your family had. Sure. And for me, for a lot of times when we would actually be like on the street walking around in town, because my family went to the, the malls that got popped up as well. Right. But when we would go to like to the Christmas parade, right? So then we had to go into town. And now we're standing there on Main Street, exactly what it was called, on Main Street, standing there waiting for the parade. And I'm standing there, I'm just looking around at all these buildings. And as you said, you would hear, oh, that's where the candy store used to be. Well, that's what I would hear. Oh, we used to come here all the time. There was a cute little diner. And Grandpa took me here all the time. And I'm like, well, I want that. That sounds amazing. Right. Growing up in that, you see decay all around you. And you see things collapsing. And you see that change. And I think at a young age, it's hard to tell if the change that is coming is good or not. All you know is conversations are now centered around who's getting laid off, who's losing hours at work, what is this person going to do, and this store closed down, that store closed down. It starts to paint a, a great picture. And I will also say where I grew up to, I guess, compound that. I didn't learn about this until later in life, but Pittsburgh, that area has just as many overcast, cloudy days as Seattle. So we have all this deterioration, all this boarded up, closing down stores and factories, 
And now it's just overcast and gray for most of the year. You know, I don't know how true this is, but when I look back upon it, I would think that I was affected seasonal, I had seasonal affective depression. Just to the fact of, I certainly hated the wintertime, the fall. It was gray. Everything's boarded up. To go along with everything else, streets are cracking. You know, you, you just don't see anything new going up. The only thing new that went up was these two malls that are getting all the attention out. And here we have LA where we're talking sunshine. Yeah. It's really interesting how, you know, you have the emotional side of things and then you reminisce and you think about it and you think of decay and gray days. Yeah. And it kind of goes hand in hand with that experience. I saw later in life a movie called The Deer Hunter, which is a very famous movie. And it's based in Western Pennsylvania. These guys are getting off work from the steel mills and going to the corner bar and drinking. And I could look at the cinematography in that and go, yeah, I know exactly where they are. I know exactly what they're feeling like. You lived it. Yeah. You know, my dad struggled to keep solid work. He thought he had a career path lined up and then he was let go. It was a scramble to find work that could support a family. How was your dad's work life for you growing up? Did he work at PBG your whole life? Was that his career or did he bounce from job to job? Most of my childhood and teenage years, he worked at PPG. It wasn't until I was a teenager and already like my parents are weird and I don't want to deal right. with them, where he himself had finally gotten laid off. As I said, I was already a teenager. I was finishing out my, my high school years and he had went back into college after that, took a severance and went back to school. For my upbringing, he was a factory dad, which is funny because my stepsister doesn't have factory dad. She has. IT security's dad, who made a lot more money, who had a lot more freedom, and was a lot, a lot, a lot happier. <laughs> when she hears stories of my dad and when I was growing up, she can't even comprehend that. And I laugh. I was like, you have no idea who that man is. Right. That's <laughs> what physical dude. labor will do versus the intellectual get paid for skill set. So let's talk about your siblings, because I know that's something that unites us. I have a sister <laughs> who was always getting into some hijinks in high school yeah. and beyond. And we've laughed quite a bit over the years about that experience of having younger siblings. So how many siblings do you have? And paint us a little picture of, of that relationship. I have two. One's a half-sister from my dad and his second marriage, and then a full-blood sister. We deal with each other fine, but we're, we're very close in age. So there was always this sibling rivalry thing going on. And I was already at an early age into music and already knew what I wanted to do. So I was already passionate and putting all my time into something, which gave me results about things. And people took interest in the things that I was doing, which I think alienated her from me because she didn't have that. And she was always searching for the thing that would give her that identity. And she didn't find that until later in life. It's interesting because when I look back about it now, this was yesterday at program, and we were talking about how one of the guys was saying that he, when he was going to school, he would always get sent letters home saying, hey, you know, he's a bright kid, but he's just not applying himself, and he has so much more potential. And I was laughing. I was like, I used to get those letters all the time. And it's funny. It's like, maybe I was just dumb, right? But it was like, well, no, I was applying myself, but it was already in music at a, such an early age. I was already so gung-ho, so influenced, so obsessed by it that Going to school fourth grade, you know, I remember getting sent home for bringing a Devo record into school, and then the nun, my teacher, just couldn't deal with it. And of course, I'm bringing this in because I'm excited about it, and I'm showing all the other kids. And of course, they're like, 
what's Devo? I'm like, right. you haven't heard this record? Check right? this out. Yeah, this is like fourth grade. Those kids aren't into music yet. So my sister and I had that difference and there was that sibling rivalry, but I myself found myself struggling to connect with other kids because I was already so passionate about something so early when other kids find themselves wanting to go play football and things like that, which I was also very interested in, but I already had my main idea of what I wanted to do. I really felt like an alien because of how come no one else was so obsessed with music the way I was? It just made me feel like an alien. And now I could only speak from my experience, but I'm going to guess that most kids go through that phase of feeling just like an alien that they can't connect to anything. But for myself, there was a movie that came on HBO when I was about 12 years old. This was the first time that I had felt finally connected to something other than myself or that there was other kids interested in the same things I was. So there was this movie called Over the Edge. Now, this movie starred a 14-year-old Matt Dillon, very first movie, and they found Matt Dillon smoking under the stairwell of this school that they were shooting at. They're like, great, here's the kid we want for the movie. He's already doing what we need. And this movie was about a bunch of bored kids from the suburbs who, through their boredom, find music as their common ground and a soundtrack to their lives as they're trying to fulfill the whole in themselves with the boredom that they have living in this gated, built community. When I saw that, I was like, oh my God, other kids that feel the way I did. And it was the very first time that I was like, there are other people like me. You mentioned the Catholic school upbringing. And I laugh <laughs> because I went to Catholic school a little bit for grade school, and then I took Catholic school for high school. That experience had some pretty crazy moments for me in terms of being conflicted with what I was being taught in school and what I was feeling and sure. not fitting in. Can you illustrate or share a story or two from yeah, oh, your yeah. Catholic high school days that were seminal for you? I had went to public school for seventh grade. So I went to Catholic school up until sixth. I can tell you where the final line was drawn that this is not going to work and I will not be proceeding in Catholic school. I was already having trouble. As I said, I was bringing records in. These are certainly not Catholic school records. Right. This is modern rock. The last draw, we were going to have a dress down day on Friday. And when I heard this, because we had our terrible uniform that I just, <laughs> just hate. Uniforms. Yep. Gotta love them. And so they said that there was going to be a dress down day on Friday and that we can wear whatever we wanted to as long as it was appropriate, you know, jeans and a t shirt. And I was like, this is my moment to finally come to school as full bore Johnny of who I am and express myself to the complete hilt of my ability for everybody in that school to know exactly who I am. And you have to remember, I'm already into this movie. I am about to let it fly. I found one of my dad's plain white shirts, which I was now going to design <laughs> For this dress down day, I took permanent markers and I, in like blood letters and like put on all these bands that I was listening to. And there was a station called Killer Rock and it was 106. It was hosted by, I still remember her name, Chris DiCarlo. I hope she's listening. I actually found her on Facebook. And so I would listen to this all day when I was home. 
they were playing Metallica and Black Flag and all these bands. And so the craziest metal fonts and blood, I wrote Killer Rock, and I had all these bands, and I put as much fake dripping blood and marker that I could draw. I ripped it up, and I was like, everyone's going to know who the hell I am now. And I was so excited. I had my ripped jeans. <laughs> I had this shirt. I think the best part of this is my dad saw me walk out to go to school that day, and he looks at me with that face of, what the hell are you doing? And I said, Dad, it's dress down day. I got this. He's like, oh, yeah, dress down day. I, okay. He doesn't think anything else of it. <laughs> <laughs> Until he gets the call. Till he gets the call. And then it's like, I, well, we'll get to that. So I go into school. <laughs> I'm wearing my shirt. And I can see that all the other kids are just dressed down as big. Well, okay, the kids are not in you know, slacks. They're in jeans. I'm, Steelers gear. and Exactly. And, of course, I get to my homeroom and Sister Mary, whatever her name is, is like, office. And, of course, I'm like, why? You know, it's dress down day. I'm here. I'm good. I made this. It's mine. So we go to the office. I call my dad. And, of course, my, <laughs> my dad comes in and he tries to pull this, what the hell were you thinking, in front of the, everybody, right? And I'm looking at him like, you saw me leave the house. You didn't say anything to me. But I didn't say anything. He gives me the talk in front of everybody. And we leave and we get home and he's like, you need to go to your room and try to figure out why what you did was wrong. And I'm like, yeah, I'm still trying to figure that out. Right? <laughs> I was going to say, to this day. <laughs> I hear my mom and him arguing. This cracks me up to this day. <laughs> She's like, well, why did you let him go to school right. dressed like that? And he's like, well, what the hell? He said it was dressed out day. He's dressed out. I didn't think anything wrong with it. And I, I was like, oh, so everything that you just pulled up in there was for show. Right. And now I'm sitting here trying to figure this out. And you don't even know. It was after that point. I was like, dad, I don't want to be in Catholic school anymore. Send me to public school. And of course, he was happy to do because that was a bill that he didn't. Right. Save some money. And my thought was, well, all the kids who are like me go to public school. And of course, when I get to public school, they're not like me. And I remember coming home and I was upset because at this point, seventh grade, I want to like start a band already. That's how obsessed I am with music and all that stuff. I remember coming home like, it's not what I thought it was. And my dad's like, well, it never is. But you're a little bit ahead of the guys. The guys who are going to be getting instruments are going to be the guys in high school when they figure out that girls aren't talking to them, they're not athletic, and they're not interested in, in academia and studies, and they're a little bit weird. He's like, those are the guys who will get instruments for Christmas. And he's like, you're going to have to wait until that point. Well, and that actually happened. But by the time those kids got instruments, I was already so advanced at that part in playing. I have to wait. You don't have I, the patience for that. I have to show them how to use them, right? That was the transition there. So I want to shift gears a little bit. Yeah. Because our audience loves asking us questions about our failures and successes. And obviously, we started this whole journey on how to get better with women. So I'd love to hear a little background of what some of your first experiences with the opposite sex were in terms of dating and going after what you were interested in. Obviously, music was a big part of it. And well, we always laugh about how the attention came from being on stage. So yeah. where did this transition happen for you where you realized that music could be a, a way for you to get the attention of women? You know, I was already interested in music. And then when I got to a certain age where girls now started to matter, I was excited because it only accelerated the idea, got to get this band together. Because 
to me, being able to go to the mall with a handful of flyers and talk to all the girls that I was afraid to talk to, now I had a reason to. So as much as I loved music, it was, let's get a show so we can start promoting it. And I used to love going to the mall with a stack of flyers. You know, I don't even know if kids do that anymore because it's all done online. Right. But that was a blast. And my friends were asking me if they could take flyers too to help promote the show because they wanted to talk to girls as well. That was a big part of it. I mean, how many things in, in a man's life, well, men and women, get shaped through chasing the opposite sex, yeah. through wanting to be appealing? Outside of our parents, it's some of the attention we crave most through our adolescence. Absolutely. We want to win our parents' favor, especially one of the things we talk about in boot camp is our relationship with our fathers. Yeah. And after that, it becomes, okay, well, how do I get these girls paying attention to me? I want that attention. And one of the things that I've always found fascinating from when I first met you was the travel that you did <laughs> with your band. For me, growing up in Michigan, I didn't get a passport till after I graduated from college. I didn't see anything outside of Windsor, Canada, because Windsor was right across the border. That was yeah. international for me. But other than that, I didn't travel much. And you had the opportunity through your music career to travel quite a bit. And you even toured other continents, which I always found unbelievable in a lot of ways and scary of like, how do you plan this? How do you get people interested in another country to want your show, all that stuff? So I want to talk a little bit about some band life lessons yeah, that you learned sure. along the way. And obviously, a lot of touring that you've done over the years has created some of these lessons for you. Well, as I said, I was obsessed with music. And also, to go back to the value episodes that we talked about, we have to talk about what drives us. Now, we had talked about how approval, acceptance, and attention are main drivers in the human species. In fact, throughout our life, throughout our childhood, throughout our teenage years, throughout our adult years, we learn different tactics in order to get those things for ourselves, in order for us to feel good. Right. And those feelings are how, you know, that dopamine hit reinforces everything and makes those wants stronger. We want to start chasing that. So my value of who I was intrinsically got wrapped up in music because I got a, a lot of attention, approval, and acceptance through music. Now I'm in high school and I'm playing under 21 nights at the local club that my parents would hang out at. And my dad's band will play and we get to play Sundays. So my parents are like, oh, check him out. I'm like, hey, look at me. So I'm getting attention, approval, acceptance. More and more, the, the value that I did hold for myself was intrinsically got wrapped up in that. So you go on to chasing that dopamine high. And so everything is about the next step, the next push, what happens next. So through music, it was like, okay, well, the first thing we do, let's get a band together and start writing songs. Do I have the talent for that? Well, I'm going to continue doing it till we get something. It's just one of those things. Why? Because you're chasing that hit. It's just so funny how that dopamine trigger acts as drugs. I mean, it is. And so you get a band together. Okay, well, now we have to play out. How do we get a show? Well, we'll figure that out. Start bothering every booking agent in town until <laughs> they cave. Give the young kids a break. Get a show. Next thing is you want to build a crowd. So how do we build a crowd? Well, we need to play regularly and we need to promote really well. Okay. Well, if you want that dopamine hit that comes with that, you're going to go out and fly everyone and do that. And then of course, where's the next buzz going to come from? Well, the next buzz comes from uh, making an EP. Okay. Well, how do we get that together? Well, we'll figure it out because you want that hit. So it's 
the next step. Okay, well, now we have a box of records in the house. What do we do? We'll book a tour. How do we get that together? Well, we'll figure it out. And you just keep chasing that dopamine hit and the next level and trying to level up to feel good because it always is the next step up, just like you have to keep increasing the dose. Right. And so through that and through chasing that, I was able to get to play a lot of places, meet a lot of great people. I always like to say I've played for everybody and would, would always play for everybody. And some of the weirdest gigs, I remember playing in North Carolina for the Hogs Hollow, which is like a bunch of a thousand Hells Angels and other bands who are connected with them. That's one gig you're going to play. Lively crowd. Yeah. And then about a year later, I found myself playing a gay pride event in Kansas City, of all places. How do you go from playing to a bunch of Hells Angels to playing that? That's the dopamine. It was like some DJ in Kansas City says he's been playing your record and he wants to have you at this thing. And there's going to be, it's a big party. Deal, and it's, yeah. And he's like, you, you won't be the only straight act on the bill. We're like, I don't care. You, if you're paying us to come out, we're playing the gig. We were sandwiched in between drag acts. And we were like a hardcore Southern rock drinking band. It's almost one of those things. So it was always about chasing that hit, chasing the next one and moving up the ladder. And then later on, those things had bands are falling apart and record industry itself is falling apart. And then you're like, okay, well, chasing this dopamine hit through this channel is starting to be a little silly. So we talk about that, about how your disillusionment with the music industry and how it was your goal, but you learned that that's a hard lifestyle. That's not something that is going to fulfill you in a lot of different areas, not just that dopamine hit. But I'd love to talk about when you were still in it to win it and yeah. you believed in the music industry. What band were you in when you felt like, all right, I got it. Things are going my way. This is my break. It's a running joke that certainly here in Los Angeles with all my music friends, everyone has their, I almost yeah. made it story. You know, was this close? <laughs> <laughs> and it's a running joke and it's hilarious, but. It's one of those things that I always like hearing about because it's unique to everyone else's experience. And it's, it's a laugh because as musicians, well, I think anyone who's ventured into any sort of business knows those pains. But right. I think there was a moment in every band that I've ever been in where there was like, oh, this is going to be rad. And I still have those moments today because I'm still playing music. And I mean, you've been seeing me play in bands over 11 years now. Yeah. From bands in new york to how many out here in los angeles and i love every aspect about it still to this day i love going to rehearsal i love packing up my gear and taking it to the show meeting the promoters you know meeting people that come out i still get off on all that and if people are listening to this podcast and want to see that show be it borders on cherokee in hollywood next Thursday. <laughs> <laughs> let's pack the house let's pack the house Over the last 17 years, we have launched our fair share of online courses, coaching programs, and finding the right platform has always been a challenge. They say if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. But if you're an entrepreneur, you know the hard work that comes with it. That's why you need Kajabi. Kajabi makes it easy to run your entire online business from one platform so you can focus on what you love, creating. Kajabi is the ultimate all-in-one platform that helps creators and entrepreneurs build successful online businesses by unlocking predictable recurring revenue. No matter your niche, 
Kajabi makes it easy to turn your skills, passions, and experiences into enriching online courses, exclusive membership sites, subscription podcasts, thriving communities, personalized coaching, and more. The best part? Kajabi doesn't cut into your revenue because everything is owned and controlled by you. So keep 100% of what you earn. And with Kajabi, you also get robust analytics, easy payment options, email marketing tools, and customizable website templates all built in. You don't even need a huge audience to make sustainable income. There are thousands of creators on Kajabi making six and seven figures with less than 50,000 followers. Right now, Kajabi is offering a free 30-day trial to start your business if you go to kajabi.com slash charm. That's K-A-J-A-B-I dot com slash charm. Go to kajabi.com slash charm and join the creators and entrepreneurs who have made over $7 billion. I know that you were in Pittsburgh and then you ended up in North Carolina. What was the backstory there? How did Pittsburgh get so bad that you just bailed? Well, this was before the internet and because I wanted to play music so bad, I was always told by my dad and everyone else that I knew in music that if you want to make it in music, you're going to have to go where music is happening. I grew up in Pittsburgh. I wasn't thrilled about the music scene there. And this is just after 92. So the Seattle thing happened. And before that was the LA thing. And, you know, London had its scene. In the mid 90s, the whole thing was about the college scene. And everyone was going to college shows. And there was a lot of bands that were doing the college circuit. And a lot of those bands had gotten rather large, REM being one of those bands. And that was about the Southeast circuit. And so for myself, uh, I had started listening to bands from that Southeast circuit. They just started percolating and coming on the radar. In fact, Chapel Hill had a budding music scene. It's still an incredible music scene. And I happened to be listening to bands from that town right at this time. And a friend of mine had had called me, and this is somebody that we had a band together in high school. I don't think we ever really played a show, but we made a lot of racket together. His parents had moved to Chapel Hill, and I'm 21 at the time. He's 21. And he said, hey, I talked to my parents, and they had agreed to give us one month that we could stay with them and live with them to get our act together so we could get our own place. He's like, there's a great music scene here. I'm like, yeah, I know. I've been listening to a lot of bands. That's amazing. So I saw this opportunity is here's an opportunity where I'm going to be in music, where music is happening. It's a budding scene. It's a now kind of place. I took that opportunity to drive down there to do that. And I was determined. I mean, how much I wanted it was clear. It was a tunnel vision of what was going to happen. So that's how I ended up in North Carolina. I love that place. I always have a soft spot there. I mean, I was there for 12 years in that scene from um, so many different bands. What is the craziest show you've ever played? What stands out as you is what the hell am I doing here? How is this happening? You know, that's a tough question because I think there's something special about every show that you play. Obviously, it's easy for me to look back upon and and see fun moments for all those things. But certainly as a younger man, I remember, I think it was being in another country for the first time, which was, I think we were playing in Gothenburg. It was the first time that I was ever out of the country. And we were on tour with another band and we had a management who were riding along with us, taking care of everything. And it was the first time where I felt important. I remember I was trying to help the 
crew unload the gear and a homeless person or somebody who was begging for some change came up to me as I was trying to unload the van and he put his hand on me and was speaking. I don't know what he's saying. And I was a little bit startled. And one of the crew members just came and grabbed him and threw him off me and told me to get in the club and not to touch anything. And I remember going, I'm somebody. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, you went from touring, loading your own equipment, getting to the show, figuring it out to having an entourage rolling around with you in Sweden of all places. To give you an idea of how silly I was about this whole thing, at this point, I don't think I've slept for 24 hours with the flying and everything. And I'm so excited about all this. I get to my hotel room and I get my own key to my own room. I mean, this is like for myself ridiculous. And of course, like any kid, I immediately roll in and start jumping on the bed. And I'm just like, yeah, this is awesome. I'm sweet and I'm playing. And we had eaten a very large meal at the club. And I had been up for 24 hours. And of course, I've been drinking and, and I'm exhausted. And I get here and I'm jumping on the bed. I'm jumping on the bed. And I immediately get sick and have to vomit, right? So I run into the bathroom and I just start hurling everywhere. And because of jumping on the bed, I didn't quite make it to the toilet for the first bout. And I'm also, I'm puking. I'm laughing. I got tears streaming out of my eyes. I'm just a mess. And I don't know how to flush the toilet because it's in another country. I don't know how it works. And I had to call my bandmate over to help me. And of course, he comes in and he was older than me. And it was his band. So he comes in and just sees puke all over the bathroom. It's like, <laughs> what, what, are you doing? what are you doing? And I was like, I'm a little bit excited. <laughs> for myself, that was certainly a very fun time for me, being a young man, being playing out the country for the first time. And how did you transition into the more business side of music, running venues and managing bands and acts? I know you talked a little bit about traveling and getting these opportunities with the band. Did that come out of necessity or was that something that interested you, the business side of music? When you're playing music, everyone needs a side gig and everyone needs to put food on a table somehow. And while you're trying to you know, wait on a lightning strike or the next big deal or you know, whatever the music dream is. So when I was about, I don't know, 22, 23 years old, I started working door for a club in Chapel Hill called The Local 506. It still exists. From working the door every night, you start to learn how to deal with the bands, getting them in, helping them get set up. You start building networks of other kids in other towns who are just like you, who are coming through town. They need a place to stay. I enjoyed that aspect of it just as much as my own playing. In fact, if I was able to help anyone else, well, that's even better. So I spent all of my time at the club when I even wasn't working, stocking beer, fixing the stage, whatever I can do to help. When you keep showing up like that, people keep giving you more stuff to do. I also had this attitude, and it was definitely stems from my dad, and we've talked about this very thing. You find yourself anywhere and you enjoy the situation, like you wedge your way in to such a degree that they can't now get rid of you. I didn't know it to the degree that I know how that works now. I just knew if I started doing a bunch of stuff that I would continue to get more responsibility because I was making it easier for other people. So it's like, then you start answering phones, you start giving messages, you start talking to promoters, you start talking to booking agents, you slowly start building a relationship. And it's funny because the local 506 had, through my time living there and working there, had been through three owners. At any time that some new management comes at anything, a restaurant, a bar, anywhere. 
they clean house. And I was just one of those people who were like, listen, I cleaned out the place except for you because you're the only one that knows how everything works around here. <laughs> I was able to do that through three different owners. And each time, you know, it was a different level. It's like, okay, well, it's yours. You know, run it. There was that for a while. And then the last owner that I worked for, Glenn, who was a great guy, he was a bit more business-minded and showed me how to put processes together and things like that to make my job so much easier. So I wasn't just running around being reactive to everything that happened at a club. So I was able to be a little bit more proactive and set up everything, which I continue to carry on to this day. And as Pickup Podcast was growing, Jordan and I were building out the show and we started to get more and more coaching requests, coaching clients, wanting phone coaching, wanting to work with us in person. Jordan and I realized that we couldn't do the coaching in graduate school. It just was too much. And Jordan was moving out to Wall Street to start his first law job. And we were trying to find a way to get some coaches to help us with our listeners. And one of the things we did, we were going and taking other programs. And we happened to end up taking a program out in D.C. And that was the first time we had ever met. And I'm not even certain that I know to this day the story behind how you got started in that space coaching for that company, because the jump from music to social skills, the dating realm seems pretty great. So how did that come about? When I was moving into my later 20s, you know, another band had imploded and I was, you know, managing this club and through managing the club, I'm realizing that the music industry in, in general is morphing. So the money is drying up. And also, I'm seeing people who were better players than I was, certainly better songwriters than I was, and seeing some of the most amazing bands that I've ever seen barely getting by. And I'm like, well, if this band, and I'm seeing not just one, one or two, but they're all, the they're all over. It's starting to dawn on me, well, do you want to continue this fighting every day? fighting to pay rent, fighting for making things meet for this craft. It was a very confusing times because everything that I've ever known is crumbling before me, just like everything that my dad had known crumbling before him. Now, during that time, I was getting into my later 20s, and I also realized that I could certainly use some work on myself. I think I'm one of those people who always need a mission. If I don't have anything to strive for, I start freaking out. What do I do today? Well, I don't know. That's not an answer for me. There has to be a goal. There has to be something going on. I'll make things up if there isn't. So I found self-development. It appealed to me because it was something to do. Because at this time, you have to understand, I'm working at a rock club. I would go to bed whenever I went to bed, and I would wake up whenever I woke up. And without the overall purpose of that, well, what am I doing? There was no rhyme or reason anyway. So you're asking what else? Yeah. And how do you hook up with that company in D.C.? I saw that implementing a few stupid changes in my life, like a few ideas from self-development, had impacted my life to such a large degree that I was like, well, if I just change a few things, and some of those things were like the idea of, and I mentioned this in the models, that happiness doesn't have to be something you're chasing. You could just be happy and enjoy the day and go from there. That was such a foreign concept to me because I grew up in a household where my dad was never happy. And when I was playing music, oh, when I get this gig, I'll be happy. Or when I get this record deal, I'll be happy. Or if I make this tour, I'll be happy. And none of those things did it. 
they only clamor me for the next piece. So this idea of you could just be happy, well, that was insane. And it worked. I was happy. So then you start working out, you start getting a schedule together, you start getting more stuff done. That opened the doors to self-development to where I said to myself, if this, if I make a few small changes and I get these large results, what else could happen? And of course, now my obsessiveness <laughs> gets turned to self-development. And in every aspect, I mean, I'm now learning about things that a lot of people get privy to in, in college for the first time. And I was so obsessed with music that I went that road. But so I'm loving the psychology. I'm loving philosophy. I'm loving self-development. And I want more of it. And so I'm just obsessed with it. And I'm trying to devour every book that comes my way about it. One of those books, and it's the cringy book that everyone knows is underneath all of this, is the game. And I learn about not only is there self-development, there's things that could help you with your confidence socially. And of course, for any guy, like, oh, you mean I could get better at meeting girls at a bar? That sounds amazing. Sign me up. <laughs> but also through that, there's a lot of self-development channels as well. Well, being the best of yourself in order to be better to other people is certainly something that I took to because I, at that time, needed to get some structure, needed to get some work. And so through that, started finding that there was other people who were involved in this, just like I was. At that time, pickup was the big thing. It, not only was it a thing, it was like practically a movement. It was like, it was everywhere. And not only that, it had its own community that was online. So it was like this new secret. You felt like you were into something. Well, yeah, it had its own language, it had its own acronym. Lang so it had a lot of the things that you were looking for in terms of that community of, of like, wow, this is something I can sink my teeth into. Whereas your bandmates, what was going on in music, a lot of times they just felt helpless and they weren't interested in yeah. changing or growing. And here yeah. you got a group of guys who want to get better. And a thing they want to get better in is something you want to get better in as well. When I tried to show my bandmates and friends about some of the things that I was learning that self-development wise, their first response was, are you telling me that I need self-development? Are you telling me I'm messed up? Because I think everyone has this preconceived notion of what self-development and who's in the self-development. So my obsessiveness needs other people to obsess about it with. I find now a community that it suits me because it's about going out, chatting up girls. I mean, this is amazing. This is right up my alley. So this was down in Chapel Hill. Mm -hmm. And what was funny about this was I was bartending. So there was things that I was learning in social engagement that I could apply to my job and measure the results and see how my tips would do at the end of the evening. And it was mind-blowing because now you could measure these results. And it was fascinating to me. Of course, the more I got into it, the more people I found who were involved in it, you start going to some other men's groups, you start meeting other people. And I guess it was just from my position and my experience because I had been around, I had played other countries, I had come from a different background than a lot of the other people that were involved in self-development. Maybe, and also I like to think that me being comfortable on stage lends me to going in front of the room and run my mouth as well. We talk about all the time how our lectures, it's part performance. Yeah. There is that aspect to it. So it tapped into something else that you enjoyed, being on stage, being up there, yeah. and how you could teach. So I would you know, talk about my experiences. And there was a small company in D.C. that was hosting weekend events. And I had chatted with some of those people. 
And I was like, wow, so here's some other people in DC. They have their own company and they're doing this type of stuff too. Go up and check it out, see what's going on. I had went up, I met everyone. It was a good time. And I just started going up on the weekends for fun. And then they had asked me to start speaking and lend a hand on the programs that they were running. Not only am I going to meet some, all these other people, get to hang out in DC, I'm going to get paid to go up. Hell yeah. So that's rad. So I continued that for a while. And that's, I would go up there on the weekends to help party, meet people. I was having a blast. It got me out of town and I was able to be surrounded by other people who were obsessing over self-development as I was. And that's where you pop in. So I'm like fully in. I'm helping out with some other program. I'm learning a lot. And we show up in DC. Jordan and I are taking the class and trying to learn a little bit as well as just see how it's run. That's really our thing, yeah. right? We have all these listeners that we want to push to coaching elsewhere because Jordan and I don't feel that we're capable of doing the coaching. We well, certainly don't have the time. You were certainly young men at the time. Yeah. And I'm in my mid twenties at this point. I'm in grad school. So we go out to DC and we take the class and the founder of the company's there, a bunch of staff. And the weekend is a shit show to say the least. There's a lot going on, people going every which way. I can attest to that. And a lot of what was happening was the people involved being more interested in entertaining me and Jordan, who were not paying customers, than they were interested in coaching the clients who paid all the money to be there. As the weekend progressed, it became clear that you, in particular, and another guy that was with the company at the time, Josh, were really going above and beyond to help these guys. And I remember specifically being on a field day where we were out at the mall. I remember that. And it was chaotic. And I'd never been to DC before. I had no idea what was going on. And I remember that we got broken down into smaller groups. A lot of the coaches who were assigned to people were just approaching themselves, doing their own thing. And yeah doing the demonstration model. Sure. I'm just going to go show you instead of actually coach you through it. And I remember you and Kim being really hands-on and really yeah. working with a couple guys that I thought were really struggling. And it was amazing to see you connect with them because I hadn't even really connected with you. Part of the reason yeah. I hadn't because I had seen you as this rock and roll guy Yeah, and you had some edge to you. You had this big bleach blonde oh, wow. haircut. Yeah. It was teased all the way out. And I remember the guys calling you John Bon Jovi. And I'm not a rock and roll guy at all. So yeah. I was just kind of like, oh, that's his thing. Great. And I didn't really see us connecting. But in that moment when there was all this chaos going on in this mall in D.C., really seeing you and Kim take the time with these few clients and be so hands on and really seem to care about them, it, it stood out in my mind in this chaotic weekend. And on the flight home from D.C., Jordan and I were talking about what we thought and at this point, we had reviewed a number of programs. We talked a little bit about the podcast, and we really were coming away unimpressed by most of the companies at the time. You know, and I think this is where it all comes together because in my experience with this and your experience, it seems to can correct me if I'm wrong. It was a lot of young people putting these things together and grabbing talent wherever they could. And these seminars turned into a big jerk fest. And what I mean by that is, it was everyone stroking their own egos and talking about you know, how impressive they were and what they're doing. And it became more about trying to press the other instructors and the other talent rather than coaching the people who were actually coming to these things looking for help. And that was the biggest turnoff for me and Jordan was that it seemed most of the people leading the program wanted 
exactly that. And they wanted to impress me in Jordan, which is not really the point of signing up for coaching. Not only had I seen it there, but I, I had seen it in other organizations. And the more I had gotten involved, the more I've, I saw it. And I think, you know, that's where all this plays into our connection. And I'll let you take it from there at that point to finish your So story. Jordan was moving to New York and he wanted to live close to his job on Wall Street. He found a beautiful apartment and it was quite expensive. We were talking on the phone when he was in New York and he was like, I don't know how I'm going to do it. I don't know how I'm going to swing it. And here we saw all these other young kids, much like ourselves. And there was a couple companies, even in Ann Arbor, Michigan, that started and they turned yeah. into big time coaching companies in the space. And we're like, well, why can't we do that? Why can't we find people to do this? We know the value of the coaching. And in Jordan and I talking about this, it was like, well, let's start our own coaching company. Who do we know that can do this? And you and this other guy at the time, Josh, really stood out to us. And I remember Jordan called me right after and he's like, you know, I talked to Josh and Johnny and they said they move up to New York. And I was like, <laughs> no way. Like, I didn't believe it was happening because we didn't really know each other. No. You know, we spent a weekend together and then we had you guys on the show. We chatted a bit back and forth, but it was certainly not a friendship where you're like, yeah, I'll move in with you. I have a vague recollection because there was a lot of drinking on that weekend, but I do have a vague recollection of us at the Rock and Roll Hotel that's in D yep. it's called Rock and Roll Hotel. It's in DC. And we were upstairs, we're having some drinks. And I believe you had asked me if I was to start one of these companies, what would it look like? And we had a brief, vague discussion of what we, we felt was important about these things. That was about it. But I do remember that. Yeah. And the discussion that I was interested in, right, is we've taken these programs, we're frustrated that we're not really finding a good fit for the audience that we had built. And a lot of the time on the programs, we either got treated like over the top, like, oh my God, we have to impress these yeah. guys. Or we got treated like complete crap. Like these guys didn't pay for this program. Screw so them. Screw They're going to be competitors. <laughs> and the conversation that we had really centered around, well, wait a second. The whole point of the coaching is the guys first. That's why we're here. That is what this weekend's all about. Sure. It's fun to go out with the guys. It's fun to tie one on and approach some people and have these guys looking up to you. But if ultimately the clients don't succeed and start to put these tools together, then you're not a coach. So in you moving up to New York, it was in the very beginning of AOC days. It was a shit show too. We yeah. had a bunch of guys in their 20s and 30s who've never run a business before. And you, Jordan and Josh didn't really know each other that well. I keep going no. back to that. Like we had some ideas, we had some awesome theories about how this would all work, but then you're up in New York and we're running month-long boot camps. It was a different model. It was the idea that we were going to try a bunch of different things to see what works. You know, we can definitely say that we tried a lot of things before something stuck. I remember talking to Jordan when he would be getting home from work and circling up with you guys and filling me in on what's going on in New York. He was telling me that it was quite draining for you and Josh to have someone living with you for an entire month, looking to you for everything, right? Mm -hmm. This is someone who's not familiar with New York and you guys had just moved to New York. Oh yeah. So you're trying to either. grow your own social circle and spread your wings, so to speak. And instead you got a client or two with you for 30 days that are expecting the world. Jordan reached out to me. He was all bummed. He's like, I don't know if this is going to work. Johnny got a job. 
<laughs> and I was like, what do you mean? Johnny has a job. He's like, no, Johnny got another job. And I was like, yeah. what? And I was worried. I'm in Michigan. I'm like, oh, no, we're already losing coaches here. <laughs> this thing's falling apart before we get started. But then when I flew out to New York to see you guys, I realized why you had gotten the job. Just having a semblance of normalcy in oh, this yeah. chaotic situation where someone is staying with you for a month, expecting the coaching, eating your leftovers just on you and having that ability to, to plug back in. And what was that job that you first got in New York? You know, I had moved to New York with very little resources and I knew it was going to be a struggle and I knew it was going to take time, but I also didn't want to be living on Kansas tuna either. What is great about this was this is one of my favorite Jordan stories was uh, he went to this bar. It was a restaurant bar to meet some girl and have some drinks. And out of the blue, he contacts me and says, hey, I know you said you wanted to pick up some bartending shifts. I just overheard the owner of this bar say that their prospective interview for bartending didn't show up. And I was like, amazing. Hold them there. I'm going to grab my resume and I'll be there. <laughs> What's great about this is this is a classic cocktail place. And this was certainly at the time when it was huge in New York, the whole mixology scene, as it still is. The turning point for Jordan was all of a sudden you went from just taking a few shifts and this is just kind of a thing <laughs> that he was helping you to get some financial support going while we're still growing this thing to all of a sudden you're manager. And I remember on my trip out to New York, I'm like, wait a second. The last time we talked, he was just slinging a few drinks. Now he's running the whole bar restaurant. What's going on? I went with my sister who was living in New York at the time down to visit you at your bar. People were crowded around the bar. You got this Southern Johnny. You had your yeah. Southern accent going, working oh, yeah. it to a T. And you're sitting here mixing these drinks. And I order a drink and I get the drink. And I'm like, this doesn't taste like what I ordered. I look at this <laughs> fancy cocktail on the menu and I'm expecting, oh, some honey and some syrup. And I'm like, I don't know what's going on here. Finally, things slow down a little bit. And I'm asking you, I'm like, how are you making all these drinks? How do you know all these drinks? What's going on here? And you, you leveled with me. So I had went up there. I had talked to the owner and she's like, well, you know, we're in a desperate spot. It's only going to be a day or two weeks. So I can't give you any more than that. And I was like, that's perfect. That's all I want. That gives me an opportunity to get out of the house, make a little extra cash, learn a little bit about New York, meet some people. Great. This goes to a lot of what we talk about here at AOC and how and the class itself, right? It's all about value and the whole thing's centered around value. And so I went there to do what I do uh, to the best of my ability. And so with my one or two shifts a week, you know, I started chatting up the regulars, chatting up the staff. I'm in the back cracking jokes and giving value to the kitchen people. All of a sudden, the staff, when they're getting scheduled, starts asking to be placed on the nights that I'm working. And then there's only two nights, one night, the owner comes back and we're like, okay, well, listen, you know, the, you seem to be getting along here well, the regulars like you and staff, they want to work with you. So do you mind doing a few more nights? And at the time I was like, okay, I'm okay with that, but it just can't be too many because I have this other thing going that I came here to do. And of course, you know, you give me more time in that area and I start making more headway. And of course it's okay. Hey, listen, you're doing really well here. The staff really enjoys you, and we like the energy you're bringing to the place. You mind being the main bartender? And at the time, uh, I was like, I guess that's okay, because I just got here. But listen, I'm not going to be working here very long, because I'm, we're doing this thing. I moved here for a reason. I have a mission. <laughs> <laughs> 
And they're like, yeah, okay, well, good. And then, of course, a couple weeks later, do you mind being the manager of the bar? And I was like, listen, I don't want to be the manager. I just wanted a couple of nights working. And they're like, well, listen, if you, you get to make your own schedule, you know, I'll introduce you to everybody on the block and you'll get free drinks at all those places. And I'm like, well, okay, well, that sounds all right. Yeah. <laughs> and of course, it was a few weeks later, like, listen, I just, I need to make you the manager of the whole thing. And I was like, I don't want to be the manager. I have a thing going on. I moved here to do this mission. Well, listen, if you just take care of things, you can make your own schedule. You don't really need to do much more. I just need somebody to point to who's the manager. Right. Who could take the responsibility, responsibility. from me. Exactly. And I was like, okay, all right. And he's like, I'll show you some more places. You don't have to pay drinks for anywhere. And basically a couple blocks here of Alphabet City. And I'm like, all right. So now you had shown back up. And I think the last time I had saw you, I was just bartending a night or two. Yeah. Now I'm managing the place and you're like, what is going on? Previously, my bartender experience was at a rock and roll dive bar. So here's your shot of Jack and here's your beer. That's my bartending experience. And yeah, I can make you a rum and coke. Now I'm at this craft cocktail place that I know absolutely nothing about. And this place on Thursday, Friday, Saturday nights, it would be packed. And it was a craft cocktail place. And I was in the weeds. So I can't be looking at a menu and figuring it out. And the thing is, most of these people are already locals who I've won over. What I would do is I would make the base and put in what I, to make it look cute. And, make, you know? <laughs> and I remember people were like, I thought I ordered a so-and-so. And I was like, oh, well, that's how we make them in North Carolina. And of course, people were Lay like, it on oh. Thick. oh, yeah. So I brought out the Carolina accent. And they would turn around like, ah, like this is Carolina style. And I'd make you another one if you don't like it. And they're like, oh, no, no, this is fine. This is interesting. And I, <laughs> that got me so far. I remember just the owner coming to me like, oh, man, I don't know what you're doing. Some of the customers who were stricklers on this craft business and who used to go there and scrutinize all the bartenders would just be like, that guy is amazing. He knows his stuff. He's got a wonderful <laughs> job bringing him in here. It was quite funny, but yeah, it was in a few months. I'm now managing this place that I was only supposed to be working yes. a, a couple of nights a so week. Jordan's for like, here's a couple extra hours for you a week to make some cash while we get things moving. And then I talked to him on the phone and now Johnny's got a job. He's running the place. <laughs> I don't see Johnny at all. He's taking all these shifts and we're panicking like, holy cow, maybe we didn't do a good job of reeling him in. What was funny about that? I mean, I would be, it's a New York bar. I'm bartending until four in the morning. By the time I have a drink or two at staff afterwards, it's six in the morning and I'm getting home. And by, you know, 10, 11 o'clock, I need to be up because we got guys coming in who are getting class that day. Yeah. And Jordan is here on his way out the door to work yeah. in the morning and you're rolling in eating a bagel from your all night shift. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think it was about six, seven months in at that point that there was enough clientele that I had to then quit the bartending and yeah focus. so once we stopped with just the month-long yeah. program idea and we started looking at ways to just teach people in new york we were running these different classes at different times so you started to have more of a set schedule with the art of charm and then i moved out to new york i dropped out of grad school and then i joined the company and at that point the company had been run by another business partner at the time and he staffed the place up so we had tons of people working for us. We had interns, we had young kids out of college. And I remember there was so much chaos. It I was moved pure chaos. to New York with my girlfriend at the time. 
And we were very serious. So I want to spend a lot of time with her. My sister lived in New York and I want to spend a lot of time with her. And you had a girlfriend at the time and everything company wise was so chaotic. It was just easier for us to unplug and hang out with our significant others and my sister. The atmosphere wasn't all that conducive. It was a lot of a lot of younger guys. There was a lot of competition between them. Well, it was set up in a way that you had to prove yourself to stay on staff here at the Art of Charm. And that competition with all these young kids, it was very fratty in the very beginning. You and I didn't really get much chance to connect. What I had known about you from the rock and roll background, I'm not a rock and roll guy. So, you know, I have a little bit of Bob Seger stuff in me from my Michigan oh, yeah. days. And some Eddie money I could go to town on, but yeah. I certainly wasn't hip to all the rock and roll music. And you pretty much had your scene by the time I moved out to New York. Yeah, I was already playing in a, an established band with Kiss's old management. So I was having a lot of fun there as well. Yeah. When we lost some business partners, there was a lot of internal strife going on in the beginning there. We had to let go of a number of those staff members and we were in crunch time and we decided to move the company to Los Angeles to get out of the piss poor weather in New York. We were getting dumped with snow. We said, let's go to LA. And we had just done a weekend boot camp in LA. They sent me, you, and a couple other staff members out to LA. And it was the first time that I had traveled to run a boot camp. I was basically just the behind the scenes. I was not coaching at that time. I was support on field nights, but I wasn't doing any of the teaching. That was really the first time that you and I had a chance to connect and really get to know each other better because here we are, we got to run this program. Yeah. And of course, our staff member at the time who also came out with us, he left his ID oh, in course. New York. So they let him on the plane, but no bar is going to let you no. in. We were down a man while we're in LA. On that program, I finally got to see you absolutely shine. This was the first time that I had sat through the class and seen exactly what you were up to and your delivery. And we then went out and partied our tail off in LA. And I remember having a conversation with you on our flight back to New York about just how much fun we had in LA and how awesome it would be to be able to be bi-coastal and run programs in sure. LA. So then we decide a few months later, all this chaos is happening. We are going to move to LA for the winter. We clear everything with SiriusXM. But before we do that, we're going to go to Europe because we knew that all of our fans of the podcast in Europe were going to have more difficulty taking a boot camp in L.A. So let's go there. And I set it up so we would go to London and Oktoberfest and then back to London after some downtime. We yeah. were completely unprepared for what was about to hit us. And I won't get too deep into that story. We'll share Europe experiences later on the future podcast. But we were wrapping up the trip in London, dog tired. It was almost three weeks in Europe, go, go, go. And then we had a little bit of downtime in Budapest, but it was winter by that time. So we were beat up, we were exhausted, we were sick. And you, me, and my girlfriend at the time were stuck sharing this room in yeah. an Airbnb that we were staying in in London before our trip home. And that was really the first time that you and I connected on a deeper level. And we started to delve into those mindsets and mental frameworks that we talked about in previous episodes. Sure, I didn't realize you and I had such a similar upbringing. Yeah. Up until this point, most people looked at us as two different guys and I felt the same way. Like, oh, you know, I don't think Johnny understands my experience and vice versa. And that's when we really connected on a deeper level. It was awesome to have that experience with you before we moved to LA because 
by the time we moved to LA, the business was slowing down and we were in trouble. And to have your support and have that connection that I had with Jordan, with you, was really powerful for us to hit the ground running here in LA. We had everything lined up and we knew what we were going to do. We knew it was going to be rough, but we knew what the mission was and that was, we went at it. When you put working class people in that position, they're going to do what they always do, which is grab a shovel and start Get going to work. <laughs> and it was really awesome to see when we moved to LA, just how much the company meant to the three of us and how much we were willing to go above and beyond to just grow this thing. And there was lots of times where we were on our last leg and we did not have any money and we were struggling to get clients and interest in the, the program, but our vision stayed the same. And the impact that we were having, we knew was important enough to stay the course. That for me was a turning point in our relationship. From there, we ended up living together for a few years. And that's when I really got to know you on an even deeper level. And for me, that's when you and I became best friends and really started to trust each other both ways. Because, you know, there was always other people in the mix. There was always sure. chaos around us. And you had a social life and I had a social life, a scene. And we didn't really mix that too much in LA. But when hmm. we moved in together, I really started to hang out with you more and vice versa. And we started to really get to know each other on a deeper level. And for me now, I feel like I know the real Johnny. <laughs> I think a lot of people, obviously see you and they have different perceptions of you and they don't get to that deeper level. The question I, I want to ask you as we wrap here is, where do you put yourself? Do you believe you're an extrovert? Do you believe you're an introvert? Have you struggled with social confidence or is this an area that you felt came natural to you? You know, that's an interesting question because I know that over the years, I've certainly changed as a person. And I've certainly entered at 44 now. I've certainly was a lot different at 22 than I am at 44. And I certainly was a lot different at 34. And those changes are there. I think I became more introverted the older I had gotten out of necessity. Being extroverted when I was younger was out of necessity because of everything that I wanted band-wise needed to happen through meeting people. Right? If you're going to bring anyone else in, you got to meet other players, you have to meet other musicians, and then you have to develop relationships and work together and develop diplomacy. And then you have to build relationships with business owners to let your band play. I mean, everything is a relationship to force myself out to do those things. And I slowly got more and more comfortable with that role, like anyone does, the more they put themselves out there. And then because of that, at working in bars, you must be extroverted and there's a lot going on. And I think as I gotten older, my role, especially getting more involved in self-development, I can't be out all the time. I can't be drinking all the time. I enjoy reading. I enjoy learning on an everyday level. I spend all of my time outside of music, which is a very small part <laughs> now, learning and implying knowledge as best I can in, in every aspect of my life. And just like I think people who are younger are much more in nature liberal, and you start to get a little bit more conservative as you get older. And I think in a lot of ways, that is true with myself. I also have tools to be able to turn on the extroversion when I need to. And I'm also thankful that I'm able to turn it off when I really need to buckle down and get some things done as well. 
a lot of life is that push and pull between those two things, just as in that push and pull in government between conservative and liberal is a very important thing. And I think that internal struggle is in everybody. People who think and feel the same at 40 as they did at 20, I have a lot of questions for them. There's no growing there. And of course, as you get older, things change. You have to develop new certain habits to be able to maintain yourself in the way that you have. Like in my music world, you can imagine none of those people really understand the level of self-development and that I am into. Because obviously I don't beat people over the heads with this stuff because you have to find self-development on your own time. When you're 20 years old, you can drink all night and get up early and not worry about a hangover or any of that sort of stuff. As you get older, your body, obviously, metabolism. I know, you remind me yeah. all the time about what I have to look forward to. Exactly. And in order to compensate for those changes, you have to develop new habits that allow you to continue being happy and healthy, such as, you know, you don't have to work out when you're 23 years old, but you need to be working out at 33 years old just to have the same chemicals firing off to keep you rejuvenated and fresh and excited about every day. That's a campaign that needs to be put in practice. And I enjoy that. And I enjoy, we talk about the runner's high all the time. Yeah. I love going to the gym. Now at 23 years old, 24 years old, I didn't want to go to a gym, but you know, things change and you have to adapt as you get older to continue to be able to have good output, stay positive. I tend to think at times that depression and depravity and just being angry at the world is a few steps away behind. If I don't go to the gym, if I don't eat right. It's it knocking can, at the door. It's knocking at the door and it can creep in to me just like it can creep into anybody. You have to enjoy it in order to be able to do it. And that's what makes life at 44 a blast. Developing new tools, getting smarter, better, faster, and taking these challenges as they come as opportunities to grow and get better. It's fascinating. It's so much fun. I think a lot of listeners don't realize, especially from first glance at you, just how voracious of a reader you are. And I've always leaned on you to send book recommendations my way. One of the most impactful books you ever <laughs> recommended I read is The Art of Possibility. We'll link it up in the show notes. Is there any other book recently that has really impacted you that you'd share with the audience? And I'm going to take notes too, because I always love your references and referrals for books. There was a new neuroplasticity book that I had just read. In fact, you're the one that lent it to me before you even got into it that I really enjoyed. And I can't remember the name of it right now, but we'll throw that in the show notes as well. But, you know, I think like a lot of people, I'm so obsessed with podcasts right now. I haven't even gotten into the audiobooks. I know Jordan Peterson's new one is on my desk. I have to tear into it. But, you know, I've listened to every lecture from Maps of Meaning to his Bible series to his interviews to everyday ramblings and Q&As, as well as Sam Harris. The piles of content that is being consumed at this point is ridiculous the hours spent with Dan Carlin in my ear. The name of the book is Neurosculpting. There we go. And we'll drop a link in the show notes. Thank you for opening up today, Johnny. And, Thank you. And giving the audience a little sneak peek inside the mind of a rock and roll genius, Johnny. I hope you guys enjoyed that. It was uh, definitely tough. It's always difficult talking about yourself, especially with all this new media, because 
you know, we get the download numbers, but when it's not until like somebody sees you and they stop you on the street and they're saying, Hey, I really enjoyed that episode where you start to go. Oh yeah. A lot of people are taking notice. We got a shout out this week for the AOC alumni in Chicago for having an epic whirly ball get together. If you're interested in joining our family here at the art of charm and taking a boot camp with me and Johnny here in sunny Los Angeles, you can learn more at theartofcharm.com slash bootcamp. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at the art of charm. We're doing some fun stuff with our Instagram stories, posting a lot more content. So check us out there. If you found anything in this show insightful, learning a little bit more about Johnny, take a screenshot on your phone and post it to your Instagram story page or Twitter. We'd love to see it. Thank you to our sponsors this week, FreshBooks and Acuity Scheduling. We'd love for you to have an epic week.